Why do you keep looking at me? No, no, I'm, I'm not. I, you I'm, are. You know what? You're right. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just you look so much like someone I used to know. Someone other than the girl you just professed your love for. Well, aren't you the Romeo? Far from it, believe me. I don't believe you, by the way. You may have Richard fooled, but you can't really expect me to believe that you, a British woman and a Chinese man, are all members of the United States military. Who are you and what are you doing on our island? You want to know who I am? I'm your best chance at disarming that bomb. Right then. Disarm it. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps talking season five episode three jughead i'm josh wiggler i'm joined here by mike bloom and the two of us are running around uh wondering where the heck we can find efren salonga yeah but i'm also looking for cole sprouse i was promised jughead yeah. i got nary a sign of archie no Betty, no Veronica. I guess if we want to call Charles Winmore the Goblin King, we can. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, the name does not guarantee a little weirdo in a crown hat showing up, Josh. Is that the most disappointing part about uh, Jughead? That there are no, there's, I, as far as I can recall, there are no hamburgers in this episode. Right, exactly. Nobody's, nobody's chowing down. Uh, no one, t- no one went to high school, at least not in this episode, despite the fact that we're dealing with time travel. I mean, look, disappointment is a, is a word that doesn't even get close to the vicinity of Jughead. That being said, uh, I know that some people really put that episode up there. It's not that I don't, but I think there are certain things that maybe I don't enjoy about it as much as I do, arguably, the two episodes that precede it. Interesting. The, the two that we've already discussed. I mean, listen, I'll, I'll come right out and say it uh, and be explicit about it, because I mentioned it before. Josh, I know that you've sort of said one of your lost hangups and one of the reasons why you're not a huge fan of season four is because of the Michael stuff. Yep. Here's one of my lost hot takes. Uh, I am not a fan of Desmond in season five and six. Um, I don't think that that's a, a supremely spicy take. Um, I, th- I think that that's fair. Well, I think what really happens is like, 
they kind of lose the plot on him. Like they only have like a tiny bit more to do with Desmond. Yeah, and so, and so that's the thing, is that maybe it's just me saying, as I talked about in There's No Place Like Home, like, you really had a point to the off-ramp, right? You had an opportunity to say he found his love, the story's end, the end, to quote Desmond, all the way back from when we first met him. And there are times that we bring him back, specifically in this episode, that to me at least are kind of like Jughead's favorite food, a little bit of a nothing burger sure. to me. I, I think that... While I love Henry and Cusick and the the season six element that he the role that he plays at least is interesting in the Flash sideways stuff, bringing him into the main plot I think leaves a little less to be desired from a character that essentially was batting a thousand up to this point. Even in something like Catch Twenty Two, when the flashback is maybe not necessarily as huge and fun as everything else that surrounds it. I don't know. I think there's a lot of stuff on Island that is so so fun, especially as we talked about last week. They really put this bomb in the earth that serves as a seed to plant that's going to germinate and grow into much bigger plot points later on but i couldn't help honestly and think like okay yeah this is a fun episode but there is a little bit of an albatross here and unfortunately it's in the form of desmond human his quest around great britain I think that's fascinating, and I don't. I don't think it is a, an unfair take. Uh, I think that there are certainly aspects of that take that I agree with. Uh, I think that his story becomes pretty slim from this point forward. The best of Desmond Hume, I think, is behind him. Certainly, mm-hmm. the constant is the high point. But there's definitely good Desmond stuff coming up. I think for me, Jughead. Um, again, we keep talking about like centricities for these episodes, and I think it's misleading because like you're inclined to think this is a Desmond episode, but why isn't it a Faraday episode? It really like, should anything, be. If anything, I think it is a Faraday episode. I don't think that it is a Desmond episode. Off island, Desmond is leading the action, but on island, Faraday is. So I think that there, you know, it's the constant and the variable. Uh, you know, these two people across time working in tandem with one another, but it's Daniel Faraday's history that is very much the star of the show. So maybe that changes the calculus a little bit. If you view Jughead as a Faraday episode rather than a Desmond episode, which is how I view it, Mm -hmm. um, I think that Jeremy Davies and Daniel Faraday, so front and center in this one, we're getting, you know, different different, uh, iterations of Daniel's parents in this episode. We are setting up really in a meaningful way, not just the end of the season and the inciting wait for it incident of so much of Lost with the detonation of the Jughead, um, but also setting up Daniel's future demise. Like there's just a lot that's going on here in terms of that snake eating its own tail quality that season five possesses that I really, really enjoy. With that being said, I do agree that I think that there are people who talk about Jughead as like an elite top tier 4.2 episode of Lost. It's not for me. Um, I think it's excellent. I think it's very, very, very good. But I think the thing about Jughead more than anything, and this is another reason why I just think season five is just like the batting average is is substantial, uh, is because like, it's just got so many thought starters. It's very provocative. Mm. It It is more a provocative interesting to consider episode than it is like an exhilarating one in in some regards i think it's a a, it feels like a slow episode it's a it's a chess pieces episode in a in a really big way like without this episode the finale uh of of this season makes no sense so we're really positioning 
the end game of season five here at the start. But I kind of love that structurally, Mike. I think that even like in this episode, the conclusion is relative, like it feels unsatisfying by design. Locke finally gets to Albert, but not until the end of the episode. And they're just starting to have the conversation. And he does do something remarkably meaningful, but Mm -hmm. it requires some thought to really process and understand why the end of the episode for Locke is an enormous deal. But the way that it's presented, the way that it feels both for John and for us, the audience, is like really frustrating and like we just got like, you know, pushed and and we're in in Eggtown, baby, go to Shell, Um, where I think in reality, it's actually rather dazzling what happens at the end of the episode. So this structural stuff of season five, where in many ways I think it's like designed to be somewhat unsatisfying. I think that 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 works for me, but it does it, it. I know that it works for me, but I do think that it can make watching some of the episodes like maybe not as like electric as certainly like that um, that like one two three punch of the season four finale <laughs> uh, with Shape of Things to come in there for good measure. Yeah, lots of punches being thrown, and not just Benjamin Linus's way. That's a, that's the interesting thing about season five as well is that there's certainly going to be some more action-packed stuff that's really the incident i think is actually like pretty propulsive in that regard especially once they get that mission with the aforementioned jughead but i think because we talk about how cohesive of a season season five is it allows them to sort of sit in the back pocket and slow play these things a bit more which is really interesting right i don't know if in previous seasons of lost if the show would have the forethought to introduce jughead here for it to really come to prominence in the last three to four episodes of the finale, right? Like a dozen episodes later. That is really cool. And I really like, I mean, I think on paper, I like seeing, uh, you know, OG versions of these older characters. I think we'll, we'll talk a little about it. Maybe some other hot takes that I might throw out there. It's also interesting because this is sort of like we're jumping through time and this is one of our first genuine stops in a time period and then we're out of it like we're going to really sit in the 70s for a long portion of time but the 50s is kind of like the warm-up act right this is the first time we're going to spend an entire episode in a time period and while it ultimately serves to plant that bomb into the ground the 70s are going to be much more of the focus so that being said i definitely have more appreciation for this episode with everything in hindsight uh i mean you know not to skip too far ahead to our ratings i do have it slightly above the lie but i agree with what you said first and foremost i will not yuck anyone's yum if you want to give this a four a 4.1 even a 4.2 it's not there for me personally but i think in, i can totally ascribe to, I, I can ascribe to what we said last week and that like i think this is a very solid episode of lost with the added little sprinkles on top of that sunday of really deliciously setting up some big elements i mean daniel faraday that intro clip was daniel faraday talking with the person that's going to kill him it's his mom. Yeah. So add that to it. You know, like, so it's it's really, really, really layered. Um, I like it. I think like it is uh, it, it is much like Shrekmond, Mike, an onion. This episode <laughs> it has uh, layers. You know, it's got layers. So we'll get into it. Of course, this is down the hatch. We are in season five. We are releasing these episodes early to the patrons of post show recaps as this podcast is dropping in the main down the hatch feed. It is May 28th. You are just around the corner from June 1st. Perfect time to sign just around the river bend. Just the perfect time to sign up for the Patreon program 
at post show recaps at patreon.com slash post show recaps first of the month is always the right time to sign up if you haven't the best time was yesterday uh was right now next next <laughs> time june 1st uh so consider signing up you'll get down the hatch early certainly this season as we are doing some time travel antics uh you get those episodes on wednesdays patreon.com slash post show recaps that's at the five dollar patron podcast level support your podcasters we really appreciate anybody who is able to help us out uh on top of that i want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors for this episode of post show recaps those are friends over at geico do you own or rent your home sure you do i bet it could be hard work you know it's easy bundling policies with geico geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy it's a good thing too because you already have so much to do around your home go to geico.com get a quote and see how much you could save it's geico easy visit geico.com today that's geico.com um mike bloom you got anything you want to get off your chest before we hop into <laughs> jughead well let's start actually with our going forth into the jungle because w- there's some interesting notes with regards to season one in this episode josh maybe that's another reason why this is such an, a unique episode to me first it's directed by rod holcomb and if you're wondering who the hell is that it's been a hot second since we've heard rod holcomb being mentioned on this podcast josh rod holcomb the last lost episode he directed hearts and minds season one episode 13 i'm not sure for what particular reason rod decided to come back for this particular episode but it's interesting that you bring back a season one director for this because according to lostpedia a this is the first episode in which none of the oceanic six appear and on top of that josh b only two of the characters featured in this episode originated in season one john locke and, and and sawyer it's it's a, interesting it's a wild thing to look at that you don't even notice and i think it's a sign of how you know we talked about how lost has done a really great job of, of fleshing out these characters that it's not necessarily like we moved on completely from that season one group but it's one of these opportunities that you sort of look around and say did we sort of like build the ship of theseus here in Jughead, where we have Locke and Sawyer doing stuff, but for the most part, everyone is someone who did not crash on Oceanic Flight 815? Yeah, uh, we have we have changed. Is it still lost without Oceanic 815 is a fair question. I vote yes. Uh, it is late lost. You mm-hmm. know, it is late stage lost, but it is indeed lost. So welcome back, Rod Holcomb. Uh, there's, uh, there's no boon to speak of. In this episode, I think Jug had a superior episode to Hearts and Minds, even though I think we enjoyed Hearts and Minds. Yeah, well, listen, I don't, th- I don't think that's saying much. Like, oh, uh, yeah, I think Jughead really is superior to the episode where Boone and Shannon do it uh, with the Sydney Opera House in the background. That's that's sort of damning with faint praise. We uh, liked but, yeah, it, though. We, I, we, we enjoyed it. it more than I think. But yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think that however the means that he returns here rod holcomb is just happy he didn't have to deal with like semi-incest well actually yeah. maybe he did not incest but in the manners of uh, family trees getting gnarled he gets to continue to do that in this episode yeah families are roughing each other up uh once again in this episode of lost let's get into it we begin in the philippines mike uh with desmond running all over the place screaming the words Efren Salonga! Efren Salonga! <laughs> yeah. Which is apparently the name of the local doctor, but I just love that. Like, 
Efren Salong. Like that sounds like a curse. No, it sounds like it sounds like a Tagalog phrase, right? Like, oh, when you're saying Efren Salonga, it's sort of like it means no worries. You know, is that Desmond's attitude off the island? No more worries. Efren Salonga, the opposite of Hakuna Matata. It means much like Vaughn would say, some worries. All worries. worries. All worries right now. Like, help, my wife is bleeding. Efren Salonga. Also, we're traveling through time and there's a bomb that's leaking. That's maximum Efren Salonga. That's Efren Salonga Salonga. That's how much Salonga is going on right now. Is this, Mike, the, the, the key, though, to understanding, uh, like, the first half of season five, who the centricity really does belong to? Because it does open with Desmond, and beyond the fact that it opens with Desmond, um, this is technically a Desmond flashback. This takes place not long after... Uh, you know, the Oceanic Six have returned. Oh yeah, they like, they knocked so many it, boots. So Desmond boots, wasn't wearing he wasn't wearing shoes when they crashed into the ocean. So the boots are gone. They've been knocked. Uh, this is like nine months later, post Oceanic Six arrival. So like Hurley is close to getting into the mental hospital. Um, I don't know where Said and Nadia are at at this point, but it's probably not looking great. Meanwhile, life and death, right? Uh, so Desmond and Penny are going to have baby Charlie. Yeah. Little, look at little baby. Char- I love little baby Charlie's hair. Oh, it's I mean, of course, Desmond would sort of like let this kid grow his hair out. Right. My my wife is someone who uh, does not necessarily go for that. She is sort of like an antagonist in the musical hair in that regard. In fact, yesterday she uh, gave my son a buzz cut and then gave me one on top of that because uh, we are an, an anti long hair household, I suppose. But I think Get rid of it. The curls really work on young Charlie here. Interesting name uh, because I love the reference to Charlie Pace. But also, Charles is the name of Penny's dad, too. Yeah, so like, and so I, I think about that. I think about, like, what that conversation looked like. Because, uh, like, we're going to name him after the worst guy, but also the best guy. And what I, what I like about it, and what I think that baby Charlie represents, uh, is this idea of we contain multitudes. Uh, like, there are no heroes, there are no villains. I mean, there are definitely villains. There are definitely some heroes, too. Uh, but everybody has, uh, you know, the potential... Uh, at the start to be something different uh, to, you know, choose your own destiny, make your own luck as Hurley would say. Uh, so I, I like this idea that like uh, Charlie without Charlie Desmond and Penny never found each other again. And so in Charlie's death, uh, Desmond honors him in life. And it's also like further defiance of Charles Widmore. It's like saying to Charles Widmore, like, yeah, your grandson's name is Charlie, but he's not named after you. I think it's such a middle finger that I really appreciate. Well, not to mention, though, I mean, Charles Widmore does begrudgingly contribute a little bit, right? Going back to the constant, Widmore does give Desmond Penny's address to be able to sort of, like, complete the loop, as it were. So that's an interesting sort of tie-in, too, that as much as we talk about Charlie Pace is, of course, directly responsible for Desmond and Penny reuniting— Charles Widmore doesn't necessarily function in complete opposition to the two of them. He does partially, but he contributes in some ways as well. But yeah, it's got to be a nice dig, too, for maybe Desmond to, to, you know, tell Charles Widmore finally, yeah, we named our child after you, but it's actually not after you. It's about a guy that we actually liked who has the same name as you, you a-hole. His name isn't even Charles. We called him Charlie. It's not even a nickname. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I will Uh, say uh, this birth... I mean, that's the other thing as well, is that they, they sort of, like, blaze through this birth in a, in a manner of speaking. Uh, you know, I, I 
unfortunately, I didn't feel as much as I love Desmond and Penny. I didn't feel as much with Penny giving birth as I did with Claire or even Son. Maybe it's because we got to live through those characters' pregnancies for a good amount of the term, as opposed to like, all right, bing, bang, boom, we're starting with Penny giving birth that you're like, oh, okay, uh, sure. Yeah, their little family's grown from one to two to three. It's not bad, necessarily, but I would say if we're power ranking the births uh, of these lost characters, Penny might be the bottom, uh, if partially due to the fact that I don't know if Efren Salonga washed his hands before he was handling that kid. Yeah, uh, just to be clear, we are not power ranking the births <laughs> on Lost. It's not a thing that we're going to do. Uh, but the, they're, they're, the baby is born. The baby is here. Desmond and Penny, they still love each other so, so much. Uh, and we get to see that even though they love each other so much, they cannot necessarily escape some measure, Mike, of, uh, of personal uh, conflict as we uh, we jump back into the present. Desmond is with baby Charlie on the on the roof of their ship that they live on. Our mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little bit of some contentiousness is going to break out here. Let's listen in sound number one. Right on air. Beyond where you can see, there's, there's an island. And it's a very special island. I left it a long time ago. Never thought I'd see it again. It's called Great Britain. And the most beautiful part of the island is Scotland. And that's where your daddy's from. There's mountains and glens and monsters and deep lochs and... where your mummy and daddy fell in love. It's also where he broke her heart. Yeah, well, I thought I'd leave that wee bit out. You also left out the bit about his grandfather. The man who sent a boat to the island to kill all daddy's friends. We'll be in and out. You'll never know we're here, Penny. Don't underestimate him, Desmond. If he finds out we're here, I don't know what he'll do. This has nothing to do with your father, Penny. We are here because of Daniel Faraday. Look, he told me that everyone on that island is in danger, and I am the only one that can help them. have to do this baby but he doesn't he doesn't but he does he does he does because what's he supposed to do he he knows it it's not a dream it's a memory he feels it differently desmond is unique in time and space and so he knows that this happened what's he supposed to do just totally ignore it no, I mean, I, I know I don't mean like from an emotional perspective. I mean, from a literal perspective, because Eloise Hawking's all already in L.A. He's going to show up there and be like, huh, don't trust her, Jack. And he's like, all right, I will. Uh, and then that's it. That is totally fair. That is 100 percent fair that that is effectively where this goes. 
where this effectively goes <laughs> is like Desmond goes through Oxford, finds out that Eloise is in L.A., goes to L.A., delivers the message from Faraday. But it really adds nothing because like the gang is already on their way back. Uh, and so he says, don't trust her. And then he leaves. And then he gets shot a little while later. Uh, and that's about it for Desmond in season five. So if the if the issue is like this is a relatively needless storyline as it pertains to Desmond, I've got no problem with that, and I think I agree with it. Yeah, um, and I I'm a big proponent of like you know you can get rid of a character and not have them come back without killing them. Like that's I've talked about you know how I wish that that had been what they did with uh, the aforementioned Eloise uh, young Eloise mentions this to Faraday in the opening clip that we listened to at the start of this the the u.s military which i imagine must be a michael uh because mm. that was a plant uh i mentioned this with michael that like they didn't have to bring him back right uh and they certainly really rush jobbed him when when they did like could they have just let desmond and penny go was that not an option i guess like the hanging thread there is is ben's threat to kill penny um so like that is needs needs in like underlined quotes bold italics to be addressed um but other than that is there not a version of lost that ends without seeing desmond again let alone even seeing him i mean like the whole thrust of the final season probably has to be very very different uh, yeah. if you don't bring desmond back but i think that there's a world where like Maybe it was a little more courageous if they choose to like leave Desmond behind in season four, and some people do get to to leave, and some people aren't um, bound by like this ironclad destiny and do get to make their own luck separate from this thing. Had Desmond not suffered enough, um, so I I understand your frustration with it. And I I don't altogether uh, disagree with it. Yeah, so that's actually what you just mentioned is maybe one of my other hangups with it. I mean, again, Lost was one of the first TV dramas I ever got into. I was a very, very late bloomer, pun unintended, to TV dramas because I feel such dread for a lot of characters and dark situations. And I can understand why why people get enjoyment out of that. It's one reason why I personally hate horror movies. But again, I'm not yucking people's yum. I can understand why people like it. I think that's another reason why I'm not really caught on to Desmond in seasons five and six is because of scenes like that where just like you said, I'm like, you had your happy ending. Like, I really don't want you to go back. I really don't want this to be, oh, Desmond had his his moment in the sun, but then it gets dragged back into the dark. And that's not what happens in this instance. Unfortunately, it is going to happen for a short portion of time in season six. But I remember in that finale, Josh, in the end, being like, oh, my God, like Desmond's going to die here and he has a family and so when jack tells him like go you have a family i hooted and hollered basically because i thought that was what's going to happen that oh no despite desmond finally escaping and getting this triumphant story of reuniting and finding love he's gonna have to get dragged kicking and screaming back onto the island and then he's gonna die there and leave his kid behind so maybe it was because i kept for seeing some sort of tragedy happening that these these scenes always kind of like put me on edge that being said i i actually really like this first scene storyline aside i love the the rug pull with the opening monologue right talking about the mysterious island also if we're talking about call forwards 
really great call forward here talking about how Scotland or a particular island has monsters that turn out to be deep locks or something like that. I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah. look what's going to happen uh, several episodes from now. But uh, there's I, a lot of there's a lot of clever writing this season that like, yeah. I I buy like all of our like is this a monster jokes aside like that is like a monster reference. Yeah, uh, like for sure. Like because they have. They have season. They have to have season five relatively tightly mapped in order for any of this to work. Well, I think so. Uh, because, well, because I think because they did sixteen straight, right? I don't know what the filming schedule is, but you pretty much have. You can't really write that much on the fly. You have to know at least the big twist. So I would imagine that yeah, the monsters and locks things has to be an explicit reference to what's going to happen. Um. All right. So let's keep going. Um. On the island, we've got Faraday, Miles, Charlotte, a couple of additional gawkers, all of whom are on their way to the creek. Wow, a couple um, a couple survived, but not for long. They lasted maybe like uh, 12 hours after their brethren and sistren. Yeah, uh, so Charlotte's got a headache. It's getting worse. She's getting double vision, and she keeps saying to Faraday, why do you look so worried? Do you know what's going on here? And Faraday's like, no. I mean, listen, um, like, yeah. I, this is a great Daniel Faraday episode. Daniel Faraday, just answer the damn question, okay? She keeps asking you, do you know what's wrong with me? You can at least say yes. Uh, maybe don't extrapolate further, but just don't, don't completely skirt and give a non-answer entirely. Correct. Um, and I also will say, like, I, I really don't love the Faraday and Charlotte stuff. Yeah, I that's another thing is that I know that they really try to amp that up this episode, right? With like, because the, I'm here with the woman I love and I'm not going to blow up the island. Maybe just because there was so little fed to us. These are relatively new characters that it's like, again, I'm it not just feels like a invested. big shift from who Charlotte was last season. Like, you know, we didn't get a lot from her, but like for her to like now be like totally like uh, completely wowed by Daniel just feels off. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe in her new adult state, she's becoming a little more softened to Daniel Faraday's wooing. Yeah. So she's not feeling great, is the point. Uh, maybe we're not feeling so great about what's going on uh, here. Anyway, um, meanwhile, uh, we've got uh, we've got Miles, uh, who's got a little bit of an attitude problem, because he thinks that no one else being at the creek means they're all dead. But he also maybe is on the money because he sees this tripwire. Um, he's a little a delayed reaction. He, he, he responds so slowly that these poor gawkers just get wrecked. Yeah, this is no, like, get off the road from Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. they already activate the tripwire. So the tripwire set off the landmines? Doesn't that feel a bit redundant? Uh, a little bit, uh, but listen, uh, these, whoever was here, the military people who were here, uh, they were clearly not here for long. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. So know. maybe they, maybe they were like, okay, we don't need both. We'll end up taking down the tripwire, but then they got taken out. But yes. here come some arrows and some guns at the same Classic. time. Really cover your bases. Arrows, guns, and others. Oh my, all of them coming out, including young Eloise Hawking, who at the time we don't necessarily know who this is. We will come to know her, of right, course. Right now she's Ellie. I will say here, Josh, maybe this is another one of my hot takes. 
I'm actually not a huge fan of the actress who plays young Eloise Hawking. Oh, I like her. I think she's fun. Um, I just feel like... What's, what's the issue? I just don't... I don't see a lot of connection between, like, the modern-day appearance. Maybe it's because, like, she's very... She's supposed to be, like, tough and a little bit smart, smart-alecky, and I don't really see that from this actress's performance. I think she's a little too cutesy. Um, I disagree. I think, like, uh, like, she keeps having the gun on Faraday, and, like, I... Maybe it's like the benefit of knowing what happens in the variable and the rest of the Hawking arc, but like I fully buy this person as somebody who would shoot Faraday. And if anything, like maybe she doesn't shoot Faraday if Faraday treats her with a little more delicacy in this moment, that his bedside manner now, rather than like uh, striving like an earnest connection with her moving forward, is going to like when she like comes out of whatever tent. And here's like the situation that's going on with uh, Faraday uh, at the others in the 70s. She's not going to have the wherewithal to like be like, oh, that's that weird little quirky time travely science dude. And so she just pops him. So there's an argument maybe that Faraday's bedside manner helps get him killed. Well, I would say, let me let me clarify here, because there are three Eloise Hawkings. There is Alexander Crosney, who plays Eloise Hawking in this episode. Correct. There's Alice Evans, who plays Eloise Hawking in the 70s episodes that you're mentioning. Correct. And then there's, of course, the uh, Fionnula Flanagan, who plays the older Eloise Hawking. I specifically uh, am not a fan of Alexander Crosney. I think that, that maybe it's just because she doesn't have like as much building out of the character as Alice Evans does later in the season. I feel, I get more... Fiona, Fionnula Flanagan, FF, I guess. I'll just abbreviate that so I don't stumble over my words anymore. From the middle stage, I guess, of Eloise Hawking that I do the, the early one. For some like reason, for, like some, for some reason, I just didn't get a lot from the younger. But we only get one episode of the younger, so who am the I weirdest to complain? Thing, the weirdest thing, though, is when we get, like, first-person shooter cam. Uh, mm. like, when she goes, who's in charge here? And then, like, we have, like, this first-person shooter mode. Which feels uh, oddly like maybe like a season one relic, uh, which would make some sense given <laughs> yeah. that the director of this episode hasn't been here since season one. You guys still do this, right? <laughs> you guys still do like that weird slow-mo thing too, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, sorry. There's no timpanis that are even being used except for one time. What? Yeah. This show's changed, man. Yeah. Imagine, imagine, you know, this guy walking in and being like, all right, where's Matthew Fox? Where's Evie Lilly? Uh, I'm like, ready to go. The Dude, they're not in this one. All they're, right, ta- well, they're traveling through time. At least g- give me my Dominic Monaghan, right? He's got to yeah. be here. Yeah, I got like, where's where's Matt? Where's Evangelist? They're not. They died on the show. No, there. There's time travel now. What? So like, Jack and Kate and Charlie are trapped. No, Charlie died. Charlie got <laughs> Just imagine him directing like this scene of Miles and Charlotte and Faraday and being like, look, I don't know who. I don't hell, know who the hell you are. Yeah, I don't know who any of you are right now. <laughs> yeah, the director just starts getting the nosebleed, too. He's like, what's yeah. going on? Oh, no, they, I, sh- I shouldn't have had chocolate before lunch break. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I thought I knew the drill here, but I guess I don't. Well, only no, I know the drill. Only it's I me. know the drill. Hey, listen, I'm a no at this point. I'm a 20 year old man. I just got out I've of college. Been- I've been on the show since season two. I don't know who you are. You have? No, I'm just pressing with you. I'm new here, too. I'm, but I'm fitting in pretty well. I'm solid. The drill Pretty good. Um, uh, I know I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to show up for 20 years, but if you look pretty hard, you'll see me. You'll see me. You'll see me. If you get, if you get one of those 70s episodes, you'll, you'll see me around. Uh, all right. So they, they're going to capture uh, Faraday, Miles, and Charlotte. All the gawkers at this point, we are to assume, <laughs> are either dead or, if we want to headcanon it, 
have escaped somehow, Rose and Bernard style. Yeah, they went to a different section of the creek, hopefully didn't set up any other traps, and maybe they, I don't know, maybe uh, while Richard's doing other stuff, maybe they were able to locate the temple somehow, and Dogen welcomes in them in with open arms or something. But yeah, that's now I think we've officially R.I.P.'d or, you know, uh, written that's off it. the Gawkers. That's the Gawkers. They're gone. They're gone. There's going to be uh, a Jira Gawkers. Yeah, certainly. Not for Not for long. They will also, I think, <laughs> mostly be be killed, which I actually think uh, I almost take more issue with. Well, than right, because because this was more of a deliberate plan, right? Of okay, you have to specifically get on this flight that is absolutely needs to crash on the island, and now these poor people were completely unaware that they were part of some sort of master plot. That's the bigger issue for me is what they do to the Ajira people. It's like the Oceanic people, like. No one on the plane on Oceanic 815, at least as that we know of, uh, like, meant for it to crash. Right. Uh, in Ajira, you have multiple people on board who are hoping and praying that it does. Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's an entire like scheme to get specifically on this plane. Uh, so, I mean, it would suck if you're trying to just fly to a certain location. You're trying to fly to Guam for a vacation and you're part of a larger agenda. You don't even realize. Uh, maybe that could be like if we ever set up other characters in the Lost RPG. That can be the, the spiritual sequel. Are the poor people that were on the Ajira flight that just wanted to go to Guam alongside Frank Lapidus and now they're on the island. All right, so back in the present, on the boat, yes, Penny's boat, uh, uh, Charlie's finished breakfast, uh, Penny goes, yeah, he's a good kid, he listens to me unlike your, unlike his father, and Desmond's like, come on, I gotta do this thing, I just gotta go do this one thing, she's like, what are you talking, like, how does this work, you don't know how any of this works, and he goes, I know, but I know it happened. Daniel Faraday knocked on the hatch door. He told me to go to Oxford. I'm the only person who could save everybody. I know it sounds insane, but I'm going to do this. I'll be back by dark, and then I'm I'm done with this for good. Uh, and so she says, all right, just promise me you're never going back to that island. Uh, and he goes, why in God's name would I ever want to go back there? He's like, I won't. How about this? I promise I won't go back to the island this season yeah exactly i no guarantees about next season but this season this definitely season, not i can keep that promise yeah and we're, this and we're, season i'm good we're gonna get this season in multiple instances right like i believe desmond's final scene in season five is gonna be him once again promising penny after he's healed from his gunshot wound that he's not gonna do this I'm going to say, as much as I love Desmond, I absolutely support Penny in this episode, being like, oh, she's great. What she's great. the hell are you doing? I am the one who ran away from my father, and I am the person saying, let's not go see my father. He's absolutely going to catch you. He's got goons everywhere. I should everywhere. know firsthand. But, like, does he? Because, like, uh, Whitmer does a pretty bad job with the goons here, I Well, you think, know what it is? I think Desmond part. just does such a great job camouflaging himself and under those sunglasses and that scarf. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, later on in the season, like, Widmore will know where Desmond was shot. He's, like, at the hospital for the variable, I believe. Uh, but, like, uh, yeah, like, he just walks out of the office. I hope that he has people following Desmond immediately from that point forward. I would it's imagine so. Yeah. I, would, I, I would, like, think so. boats to tail, maybe, like, scuba divers just sort of, like, hanging out behind the boat, having it drag them along. Correct, correct. Uh, all right, back on the island, uh, young Ellie, she's interrogating everybody. Uh, she says, we didn't put the landmines there. You did. So there's already like a little bit of a you're the others type of thing, a mistaken identity case. They think that Faraday and Miles are part of the military that have recently arrived on the island and have entered into conflict 
with the others. But uh, there's another uh, group of people elsewhere on the island who have a reversed dynamic where our heroes have the others in their sights. Uh, and there's a fun reveal in this moment where we find out that they are the others. I like the scene. Let's listen in sound two. Who are these people? Well, gee, I didn't have time to ask that with Frogert on fire and all. They attacked us on the beach. This is a 30 caliber M1 Garand rifle. Looks new. Who cares about the rifle? Where the hell you been? If you've been going through what I have, James, maybe the more appropriate question would be, when the hell have I been? I'm near leg. I got shot. By who? We can swap stories later. We told the rest of our group that we would meet them at the creek. If there's any chance of reconnecting with them, we better get moving. Fine. Seeing we have no rope to make sure these two don't try to kill us again. Guess we're going to have to shoot them. Quine on some quest you two say he's... Okay. What? Cognos quichus qui sumus. What language is that? Speaking Latin. That one asked why we aren't in uniform, and this one told him to shut up. And how is it that they know how to speak Latin, Julia? The same reason I do. Because they're others. It is sort of weird for Juliet to call herself and these people others, right? Well, I think she's she's doing it in like the language of Sawyer and Locke. I used she's to translating for them, yeah. Yeah, I used to have a, a hang-up on that, too. I was like, does she... like? Do, has she just like quickly been like they are the others like she's othering herself i think that she's like just like speaking their language uh, Mm -hmm. at this point like i don't know that like much like the man in black apparently like these guys don't have a name yeah you know (laughs) exactly i i really like the duality here where we just saw that the here are 815 or whatever uh our main characters are being captured by the others and now in this scene we have the reverse where the others have been captured by our people uh and so i I really like sort of the cross comparison between that and how these two groups will merge uh and yeah this is where juliet reveals that I guess, I mean, does this this goes beyond Ben, I suppose, considering it predates him. Is this a Jacob thing that you have to learn Latin if you want to become an other? Yeah, I think perhaps. I think, like, it's part of, like, the, the training. Get with uh, the trends, man. Like, yeah, you, you, you know, became Jacob in a time where there were still rustic, uh, almost like uh, caveman-esque villages going on. But we don't speak Latin anymore. Get with the Gen Z lingo. Um, yeah, but that being said, like, good secret language, huh? You know? I suppose so. I don't know. Maybe they, don't have, they don't have to develop it. They just have to trust that not a ton of people know what the hell they're talking about. Exactly. It's not like Ubby Dubby where they have to say, oh, yeah, like, do you speak other E's? And it's yeah. just a completely different language. It's more so, hey, let's take this quote unquote dead language. I'm uh, surprised that uh, Sawyer at no point goes like, that's not Latin. I speak Latin. Ixnay on the I'm travel tape. Yeah, like maybe because uh, they, if they had a couple of extra lines, they would have done some pig Latin or some boar Latin, yeah, as bo- it were. Boar Latin. Yeah, I, Locke's like, I speak boar Latin. I will say that this scene, and you mentioned also, it Also, I feel like um, season one, John Locke would have known instantly that that was Latin. Yeah, though I think he he does a little bit of like season one esque tracking in this episode. There's there's a bit of a callback again. Maybe that's the director being like, "All right, John Locke, you're one of only two characters I know. You're still tracking, right? You're still tracking people, right?" He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, of course. I haven't done it in a while. Okay, great. 
oh my god you're my constant you're my oh constant my john Locke hunting i will say that one uh, one thing that this scene does and they do a couple times in this episode that i'm not the biggest fan of is again another one of your hang-ups from season four right the whole like okay we're gonna ask this question but then someone gets interrupted before they can answer the question it's a small thing here because i don't think Locke revealing that he got shot by ethan is like a huge revelation but i i just find an interesting choice that it's like sawyer asked Locke, but Locke can't respond because juliet interrupts him correct uh so i like this i think that this is a cool dynamic and of course a little baby whitmore here um, uh such an a-hole yeah he's great back on the faraday team um miles has like a little moment he walks over a fresh grave he says that there are four soldiers who have died, one of whom died from radiation poisoning. Uh, but none of them mentioned what year it is. Here's what I love about this scene. Faraday doesn't really question this at all. Yep. Um, and, and, and what I love about Faraday and Miles, which is a, di- a dynamic we don't get really nearly a lot of, is that these are basically two like powered up people. Um, Miles has like the literal like I can speak to dead people power uh, or like he can like yeah he could speak to like B-O-D-Y-S power uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean I guess like he doesn't need the body you know he was able to do the um, uh, the the ghost busting thing back in Confirmed Dead um, but he could speak to the dead and Faraday like understands time travel he's like, kind of like harnessed the ideas of time travel uh, so like you know, there's like this mutual respect of each other's skill sets here that I that I love, where it's just like kind of unquestioning. Like there are some ways in which that core four freighter team are like tighter and in more lockstep than eight one five has ever been. Right, because I think that they sort of understand each other's skill set, and maybe that's in part due to the fact that they were assembled as a team for that very reason, as opposed to this group of people slammed together in a plane crash who had to figure out what each other was good at. This was, okay, you're the one who talks to dead people. You're the one who knows time travel. Charlotte, you're there. Uh, you're there. And so, and so you th- were cool last season. You had you knew every language. You would have known. Oh, the she would have known Latin exactly, or even Boer Latin. Uh, but you know, I, I think that having that specialization helps. I mean, this is a great episode for Faraday. Not uh, even just because of the time travel stuff, but like also his investigatorial abilities. Daniel Faraday is sort of like a Sherlock to me in this episode, where he's picking up these like imperceptible details, right? He sees that someone's hands are wrapped up and then off of the radiation burns remark from Miles, puts two and two together and then says, okay, conclusion, they were setting off bombs here. Uh, and so because they did that in this time of, in this, in this era, even though I don't know what era it is, and he ends up making some very correct educational guesses. So again, like this is Daniel Faraday's sandbox at the moment and he is loving every second of it. He's loving Loving every minute. He's loving it. Uh, so uh, they get brought to the camp, the military camp. Uh, although this is like sort of like early others, but they're are they like using military gear at this? Yeah. Point? So we mean, well, we know that like Winmore and Cunningham, like they took the uniforms of the soldiers. I'm still not sure why. Maybe it was for them to like. I don't know, infiltrate the military disguised as soldiers, or maybe they were just doing it for the lulls. But it does seem like, you know, because the, the village is not going to get built, right? That's what uh, middle stage Eloise Hawking is going to say later in the season, was that they buried the bomb and then they built a village on top right. of it. So I don't think it's established at this point. But I would imagine if they're not actually in the military encampments, they're at least l- using their tents. 
But Josh, this is a location that actually I don't think we've discussed too, too much as like a central location on Lost, the Mesa. Yeah. Uh, not to not to reference Westworld. Westworld. No. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Mesa is, I mean, it showed up in the very first episode, right? Like this is where uh, Team Transponder goes to try to get the, the radio signal. But we know that uh, it's, it's also where uh, the Dharma van gets started up. It's where the yep. golf course is. And this is where they, they choose to, they find a flat piece of land to sort of serve as their encampment. So we are at the Mesa once more. It's also going to serve as a spot for another sort of like Dharma-esque moment. This is where Ben's going to drive his dad out into the middle of nowhere and kill Correct. him. So yeah, I believe we'll be here in the end uh, when... Um, Jack and Notlock's crews kind of collide before they go off towards the bamboo forest together. Yeah, so like it's a very meaningful place, even more so than the one creek. And so I, I love that we sort of keep coming back to this place as a touchstone. And here, when you talk about, you talked about how in the end that uh, the Mesa is sort of a source of a lot of volatility. Really fun stuff has happened. Really dark stuff has happened, uh, including, in this case, this is where a near-active bomb is sort of situated at the moment. Correct, yes. Uh, So, a lot going on. Richard Alpert's here. It's kind of a really big moment. Yeah, we've already seen Alpert through time, but, like, just, like, because, like, so much has been so unstable on the island that Mm -hmm. to get this force of stability that, like, uh, you know, sort of like uh, same Alf- Albert, different time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just it's 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 a really cool layer of constants. Uh, yeah, uh, who's constants? I, I also um, so love. I, I think that's great. I also love the exchange of what's your name? What's your name? Uh, Faraday. Either Faraday does a really good job, or the others do a really bad job of just completely giving away the game. Because uh, then you have them reply like, oh, you must have come back for your bomb. And it's like, wow, they're giving away a lot of information. Uh, if they happen to not be military, which they're not, you certainly are sort of just explicitly saying off the top who they are, why they're here, and the fact that there is like a weapon that is on the island that they could very easily detonate if they want to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I assume you've come back for your bomb. Uh, meanwhile, Desmond goes to Oxford. And Mike, say what you will about Desmond David Hume. But this dude looks like Bono. Like, this dude ah. looks like a rock star. He's got the shades. He's got the scarf. The beard is shaved, but it's still got a little bit of that stubble. Uh, the hair is out. Like, the Bono comparisons for some people are going to be insulting. But I mean it as in, in, like, its most highest complimentary sense that Desmond Hume looks like a rock star right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is among my favorite Desmond looks is how he looks in this episode. I mean, Uh, he is certainly island hot, but I agree. He cleans up well. He just cleans up so great. It's like he, he like, like when, when he like shared so much headspace with Charlie Pace, it's like he absorbed all of his rock star powers. Well, not to mention, I think it's very convenient that Desmond looks like Bono in an episode where we learn how to dismantle an atomic bomb. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Good connect. Um, no one at Oxford wants to tell Desmond shit about Daniel Faraday. It seems like he's been scrubbed from the system. Um, but Desmond has memories from the Constance. So he kind of like knows his way around this place. He's been here before. Yeah, sort of, though, because Desmond has a moment, right, when she asks, oh, when were you here last? And Desmond can't remember. Do we think that's just like 
a blip in his memory? Do you think it's like the more time he spends away from the island, the more the timey wiminess uh, affects him? What do you think about this like momentary lapse in memory? I I kind of take it as like Desmond has probably like these blackout periods in his life. Like you know, mm. I still subscribe to the idea that the flashes before your eyes stuff is canon. Right, it happened. That, that, yeah, that's sort of my thinking on it. And so like he has that. Um, he has that blacked out for himself. Uh, like, he doesn't really remember that. And, like, probably a lot of the reasons why he feels like such a coward is he just, like, he forgot so much stuff. And, like, he doesn't even know why he, like, ruined shit with Penny. Um, he doesn't remember going to her on Christmas. He doesn't remember, like, you know, going AWOL. Like, I, that's how I tend to read Desmond. Um, Maybe maybe there's like some level of like projection on my part of like <laughs> wanting there to be like the character who like has these like sort of like traumatic memory gaps that make it hard for him to like fully like did I do that did that happen like mm-hmm. I I suffer from an extent of that uh like not, I'm not going to get too heavy with it but like I have like you know I often talk about like my bad brain oh my god I don't remember stuff but like I genuinely just like lose information quickly uh, mm. and it's been happening to me for like you know, decade plus at this point, and it sucks. I really hate it. Uh, and like, I I feel that through through the Desmond storyline. I think that there's enough in the text um, that that can play into that idea. So like, I think like he he knows it happened, but maybe he doesn't know that like it was 1990 whatever. Maybe he doesn't remember that. You know, there's like bits of it that maybe he just doesn't quite get. I think it's also very likely, and maybe it's because I've been binging so much X-Files that maybe there's something that's repressed as well. I know I actually watched an episode of the X-Files this week where uh, Fox Mulder is investigating sort of like his repressed memories. And there's a lot of like sense stuff that that comes about. And so maybe that's a thing with Desmond where like he knows, but he sort of doesn't know how to get into Faraday's office. You know what you need, Josh? You need a Cockney janitor come in and be like, oh, right, this is what you missed. This is everything that happened. Don't you worry, I'll caught you up. I got you, puppet. Uh, yeah, here comes the janitor in the physics department who is like, I wondered when someone would figure out we weren't just fumigating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, listen, I like he's a, he's a hardened guy, but I would understand. He's like, he sort of is in the Mike Rowe-esque position of like having to burn all of the dead rats that yeah. Daniel Faraday was experimenting on. Like, yeah, I'd be pretty ticked at the guy as well. Tough gig. The fumigator. The fumigate keeper. Uh... <laughs> He talked about how Faraday was sending rats' brains back in time. He was doing all sorts of weird science. Uh, and Desmond asks why there was no record of him. Uh, and the the fumigator says, can you blame anybody after what he did to that poor girl? And so both Desmond and us now at this point are like, that poor who? And we did see, we saw, you know, a picture on the ground right before this of uh, Daniel posing with a woman that looks like a young Leslie Mann. It turns out it will be Teresa Spencer, which we'll get into more with the variable, I believe. But yeah, this is the beginning of, uh, hey, you know how Daniel Faraday is kind of like that fun, quirky, mulleted guy that we met back in Oxford? He did some pretty sick shit there as well. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? He, uh, <laughs> he is the son of the woman who will murder him. Uh, so it's a pretty tough upbringing. Yeah, and, and also uh, the son of this Faraday. like egomaniacal maniac as well. There's Charles a lot Winmore. going on. There's a lot going on, and he didn't really have anyone raising him. 
uh, with any semblance of uh, of like nurture and care. Uh, so he really is getting it on both sides, which which totally sucks for poor Daniel Faraday, uh, but does not excuse what happens to Teresa. Um, yeah, she fell. So, she fell down the stairs. She fell up the stairs. She went back in time. She went into a coma. Yeah, I, I'm sure that there are theories out there, by the way, that the Teresa of the Daniel Faraday story is the Teresa of the Boone Carlisle story, but also. Having heard that, like, Kitsis and Horowitz were so obsessed with the name Lapidus that they just, like, refused to, yeah. like, do loss without naming someone Lapidus. Just gotta imagine someone in the writer's room liked the name Teresa. I mean, listen, we just talked about a young character named after two guys who have the same name, Charles. I think that recurring names is just something that they like to do on Lost. Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, all right. So, meanwhile, with the Faraday team, uh, Daniel's trying to calm everyone down. They think we're the military. They think we're Michael. Uh, we just got to stay still and pretend like we're plants. Uh, no, he says they think that we're army. We should we should stay alive. That's going to be, you know, we'll stay alive if we, if we let them think that we're part of the army. Um, Albert comes in and is like, so what the hell? You guys attack us? You come to the island? What do you think? We're not going to defend ourselves? And Faraday at this point is like, hey, so um, my friend who sees dead people talked to some ghosts and told me that they died from radiation i assume that there's a hydrogen bomb here yeah uh and so it's a pretty good guess smart uh smart work on daniel faraday's part um he says this is an unstable device it's capable of destroying this whole island let me render it inert and albert says well how do i know that you're not on some sort of suicide mission and faraday proves that his intentions are genuine by confessing his love for charlotte (laughs) it's a you know brave tactic cotton let's see if it ends up working out for him i mean it does but it's an odd sort of go for broke thing right like how do you know you like how won't you go on the suicide mission well because i love the person sitting next to me great maybe she's on a suicide mission and wants to blow up the island uh you know just because you're on it with someone that you love if anything you might bonnie and clyde style want to go out on a blaze of glory together having blown up the island it's an odd defense and piece of evidence but it somehow holds water in this kangaroo court that's going on it's weird uh i don't know like uh, i'm in love with the woman next to me and i never do anything to hurt her uh, it's just so, it's kind of odd, and for Albert, that's good enough. Well, so, like, well, here's the thing, though. Do you think Faraday should use the argument he uses with Ellie with Richard Albert? Considering that, I don't know if, if he knows at this moment, but we know that Richard Albert is someone who, like, is capable of, of not necessarily traveling through time, but has seen so much time that I think if you are presenting the argument of, like, I'm from the future, and I know what happens 50 years from now to anyone about the island, I think Richard Alpert would probably be the most understanding in that capacity. Well, that being said, Alpert's going to be really incredulous when John Locke comes to him. Uh, like mm. eventually, eventually, like you know, he plays ball, and he certainly believes enough because the guy disappears in front of him uh, that, he, um, that he needs to go check out you know, Tunson, California in 1956. Um, maybe, but I also don't think Faraday knows who Richard Alfred is. You know, yeah, Alfred well, is, is largely absent from season four and not really on Faraday's radar. Yeah, because I do wonder, you know, obviously Charles Winmore sent them an entire dossier about 815 that Miles memorized by heart. I guess the question is, are some of the other residents on the dossier, right? Like, we know Ben Linus is because that's their mission, but did Charles Woodmore tip them off about, like, well, watch out for a guy named Richard Alpert. He might be helping Ben. He has, he looks like he's wearing eyeliner, but don't let that fool you. He's very, very much alive, and he has been for many years. 
Yeah. Um, so he's gonna let him. He's gonna let him go. Uh, he's gonna let him go take care of the bomb. Meanwhile, let's go to Team Locke, Sawyer, and Juliet. Fun little scene here in the woods. We'll listen in sound three. Who taught you Latin? Oh, that was 101. Gotta learn Latin. Language of the enlightened. Enlighten my ass. I suggest you talk to us. Once we get back to the creek and meet up with the rest of our people, there's going to be a lot of anger directed at you for attacking them. The rest of your people are either captured or dead. What? What makes you say that? That idiot shouted out and meet at the creek. They knew exactly where they were headed. Sent a group after them. Well, maybe I should have said it in my secret language. James, wait. Nos no somos hostes woves. You talk when nos liberate. What the hell are you saying? Duque nos ad vestra castra. Si plaquette. Quote hoc facion. His name, Ricardas, maybe? Ricardas Alfred? Did you just say Richard Alfred? John, please. Duque nos ad vestra castra. Non acese est alium mori. Okay, we need to head east. Another couple kilometers till we hit the ridge. Shoot him! Crazy? What were you thinking? Why didn't you shoot him? Because he's one of my people. So here's a fun what if. What if he did shoot Charles Widmore? Would it be like the prologue to the baby Ben Linus stuff where he doesn't die, but like they have to bring him to the temple and that's how he gets invigorated with this evil spirit? Um, I guess. I mean, like the one thing that would have like he shoots Charles Woodmore, Charles Woodmore can't die. Exactly. That's because not because on the table. whatever happened happened. And so therefore, like he can't be yeah. expunged from the timeline after that. Yeah, but I think what he does do is he kind of just, like, wrecks him uh, uh, in terms of <laughs> reputationally hip-checks Whitmore when he shows up later, like, nice to meet you, <laughs> you know, when he shows up at the camp. Um, yeah, here's... More than that, uh, that I would like to discuss is Locke lets him go because he's one of my people. But didn't John Locke just murder one of his people? Yeah, that's odd. Maybe it's because now that he realized they're one of his people, he could let him go. Like, at least he can blame that on ignorance, right? Like, oh, you were uh, about to chop off the hands of one of my friends, so I had to stop you. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I'm your leader? Ooh, okay, sorry about that firing, but I'm still a good boss, so I'm going to let you take a little vacay and leave the office a bit early. Yeah, uh, so I I don't love that piece of it. 
breaking the scene down because there's a lot that you know just went down here, uh, including breaking the neck of uh, poor Richard Cunningham and his wife. Yeah, going, going going the way of uh, Richie Cunningham's brother yeah. from uh, Happy Days, right? Like going yes. up the stairs and never came back down. Uh, so Cunningham is going to get killed, uh, Teresa style, uh, <laughs> and that's fun. Widmore running off. The thing that I that I like the most here is this moment at the top between Juliet and Sawyer. Who taught you Latin? And she goes, "Others one hundred and one." It's starting to get a little cute here. <laughs> These kids are starting to get a little cute, but but it's also not only is there some cuteness though. There's again some fun foreshadowing here, right? Where she says uh, Latin 101, language of the enlightened, and Sawyer says, "Enlighten my ass." Sawyer has such obvious derision for the others, not knowing he's going to become you know among them essentially as a member of the Dharma Initiative in the '70s. So that's a little fun thing as well. That's a reminder of like Sawyer's pure hatred of the people that he's going to end up working alongside in the near future. Yeah, uh, so I I think that that's cute. I like I like it. I like uh, I I like where they're starting to take us here with yeah. uh, soy sauce and Juliet. This is a good Juliet episode in general. It like is. She she gets like she calls them out on the Latin stuff. She is the translator right here. As cute as Sawyer is, he gets a little bit of Eggtown on his face uh, when Cunningham mm-hmm. says, like, well, you did yell meat at the creek, so you kind of was able to corral all the, the, the herd the sheep into, like, one central place to slaughter everybody. So, yeah. uh, yoke's on you, funny boy. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's one of the last things that, that Cunningham says here. And even though Locke let Winmore go, Winmore's going to leave a pretty easy trail in his wake for the trio to follow. Yes, yes, he is. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so in the present, uh, back in Great Britain, the island, uh, Desmond is going to meet Abigail, Teresa's sister. Uh, he says, I'm here about Daniel Faraday. Oh, Daniel Faraday! Well, why didn't you say so? You must come in. It's very, it's, remember, it, it's so I odd. back in the day, Mike, not liking this character a lot. On this watch, I kind of liked her being like, Daniel Faraday! Frickin' Faraday! Well, <laughs> sure, come on in! Why not? It reminds uh, It's like a sarcastic version of the guard from Wizard of Oz. of like, well, it's a horse of a different color! Come on yeah, in, Desmond! Come on in! Why not? Um, Teresa, it, it, she's been... Uh, she's Billy Pilgriming. She's unstuck mm-hmm. in time, and it sounds like she's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, she's not um, She's not full Minkowski at this rate, right? Like, she's not... Doesn't seem like she's in poor health necessarily, in that, like, her body is giving out on her. It's more so, like, her mind is just perennially moving through time that has rendered her comatose. Well, it's so... I mean, she wakes up every now and then and, like, talks about all, of, like, the disjointed things she's seeing through time, does seem like she's only alive because of Mr. Charles Widmore's uh, interference uh, or assistance, if you want to uh, look at it that way. Um, but, like, is she just, like, sort of, like, experiencing her entire life? I guess depending on the life she lived, you know, maybe she's maybe she's happy, maybe she's not. I don't... Maybe she's going to the future, too. Mm. Like, who knows? Like, maybe someday, in the same way that, uh, that Claire's mother uh, was able to heal... Teresa will heal after Faraday's death, perhaps. Yeah. 
you know, like maybe that will release her. So I'd like to think that there is a uh, brightness ahead for Teresa. I but hope we have, so. We have no idea. Because otherwise, it is such a grim, grim story. Well, because then it essentially renders that like Daniel Faraday in any moment in his proximity just suffers the darkest fate in life, right? We talked yeah. about that with the way that Daniel Faraday is going to die. But also the person that was his girlfriend, like the closest thing he had to a love until Charlotte, who he experimented on, is now in this torturous situation. I'd like to hope there's some mercy, that there's some light at the end of the tunnel there. Yes. Uh, but yeah, she was. Uh, this is all because of Faraday's experiments. She's away right now. Yeah, and also, the, not only due to the experiments, but apparently Daniel Faraday also abandoned her when he found out that, you know, essentially what happened to her. And there was only one person that stepped in and helped her in her time of need, Mr. Charles Widmore. Of course. I, you know, there is the charitable read is that Faraday and Teresa were in this together and then the, the experiments went wrong and Faraday got messed up in his own right because, you know, we do see him with the whole, like, I don't know why the island is upsetting me stuff. Like, he definitely seems a little wobbly in his own way. Uh, so did he abandon her? Was he, um, like, taken away potentially by Whitmore and like institutionalized in a way that Whitmore has tabs on him because he is going to be able to visit him to recruit him for the island is he trying to make his life as comfortable as possible uh in the lead up to his ultimate death um I think like the he abandoned her could be a little bit off the mark there is a degree to which a large degree to which Daniel Faraday's entire life is not his fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, that of any character on the show, or of many of the characters on the show, certainly John Locke is going to be on that list, uh, as we'll be able to discuss in a, a few scenes from now. But Faraday is on the record, right? Like he is. Uh, you can't. You can't spin a record. Like he has been. The needle has been put on, and it won't stop until he's shot. Like he doesn't have a choice in his fate. It's really, really circularly locked. Yeah, I mean, I would also say that Daniel Faraday, at least even in this episode, has shown himself to be a bit of a lover, right? Like, he was one of the softer spots of the freighter group in season four. So I wouldn't necessarily take him as the type of person to outright just flee at the first sign of danger for someone that he really cares about. But Daniel Faraday also could have been a very different person before uh, his experiments, right? So maybe that is in line with, like, a pre-experiment Daniel Faraday. One way or the other, but either way, whatever happened, happened. And whether he meant to or not, Daniel Faraday has left this this island. Uh, He will go to another one eventually and has essentially abandoned Teresa and her very odd-talking sister. Yeah, so back on the uh, on the island island in the 1950s, uh, Faraday's going to talk about how uh, hydrogen bombs were being tested in the Pacific in the 50s. That's how he was able to make this uh, this prediction. Charlotte tells Daniel, you didn't have to say that. There were so many other ways you could have convinced and, him. And that's the other thing as well, is that this sort of feels like uh, a mimeograph of the Kate and Sawyer stuff from season three, right? They're like, oh, you didn't have to tell Pickett that you loved me when you clearly didn't mean it. Oh, but do I? It just feels like, again, a repeat of that similar type of trope with two characters that we care much less about. Correct. Uh, so... He says, I, I, I said it because I meant it, Charlotte. I said it because the writers made me do it. No, I said it because <laughs> I meant it. Uh, That's so the other thing. Daniel Faraday's at the mercy of so many people. His mother, his father, the writers of Lost. Yeah. Uh, so young Eloise is going to come and start walking Faraday uh, away. 
Albert's going to tell Daniel, like, we've already, you know, like, we've had a, you know, a big uh, offensive with these soldiers. We've, you know, killed a bunch of these people already. Uh, there's this whole line about, like, you answer to a chain of command, right? Well, so do I. So, so Richard is saying that they killed the soldiers because he was told to. Mm-hmm. This doesn't sound to me like Jacob. You don't think so? Does Jacob, like, tell Richard really what to do? Or does Jacob mostly... is What is Jacob's ethos? I know, like, Riley frothing at the mouth right now. <laughs> Our mutual you, friend, Riley, yes, not to, not to quote you. the boat. Love you, Riley. Like, I'm, like I, I know, like the, like, the Jacob haters out there. Uh, but, like, also, like, isn't Jacob's whole thing, like... They'll they're gonna do what they want to do. Yeah, but you know, when you get to do the thing, and that's just gonna happen the way it's supposed to happen, man. But you know, the, like he's sort of like pre Dharma. But at the um, but at the same time, when it's as extreme as like they're gonna blow up a bomb on the island, maybe then you you sort of become a bit more of the bad cop. When it's that extreme of a scenario, maybe when they were squatting on the land, Jacob was more fine with it, but it's like, oh, you're detonating weapons on the island? This island that is so special and, like, where I essentially live and my spirit will exist evermore? That's no good. Yeah, could be. I mean, I think I think it's possible in that regard, too, that, like, they have failed the test. Yeah, you know, exactly. like they have cho- they have chosen war, but I don't know. It, a little hard for me to justify. Um, I'm just also trying to think what would be. Is there any man in black kind of way that this would work? That Smokey's not able to take on Jacob's likeness. Yeah, like so no. would, would he appear as like a dead person that Richard right. knows to say, right. oh, "Oh, you know, you won't believe this, Richard. It's me, uh, Phil, the other that just got killed." Uh, I was just talking with uh, with Jacob, uh, and he said we should kill all the soldiers. So I think we yeah. should do that because Jacob yeah. told us. Yeah, I don't know. I so it's a it's a little bit like I'm not I'm not entirely sure here unless Jacob's just like yeah, kill him, whatever, it's fine. You know, uh, a little bit of the inconsistencies there for me, or at least it's a little harder mm-hmm. for me to 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 uh, to glom on to. Um, uh, Widmore shows up. He's going to warn Albert that there's another group here. They're being led by a sodding old man. You think he can track me? Uh, you think he knows this place better than me? Cut to John Locke in the woods just watching this happen from a distance. Well, and it's also a great setup as well that, again, it's not going to be John Locke, but I feel like season six is a lot about Widmore finally finding the island versus sort of like the man in black. Uh, And so I think it is maybe unintentionally, because I don't know if they have that in mind for Endgame at the moment, but setting up sort of the dual antagonists in season six, even though they're not working together. But it is very much going to be these two figures will cross paths in the future. Correct. Uh, so Locke is going to be talking to Juliet. How did you know Albert would be here? He's always been here. He's like the the, the groundskeeper at the Overlook Hotel. He's always been here. Um, how old is he? Says John. How old is he? <laughs> old. Nothing. Old. Nothing. Nothing creative. No. No. Yeah. I would not be good with Juliet on Match Game. I don't think she'd be very, very, you know, uh, jokey in that regard. Old. Old. Uh, so John wants to go and have a chat with Ricardus. He wants to he wants to pick up where we left off. He's, I'm going to go down. I'm going to finish my conversation with Richard. So he says, Locke, you're going to get us killed. 
Uh, listen, uh, you want to go and uh, march off after Faraday? That's great. I'll give you a 10-minute head start. It's, it's um, this weird dynamic where John Locke is going to be the one to, you know, uh, reset the wheel and help save all these people. But at the moment, this is more so like Locke saying, hey, uh, I'm going your guy's way. Mind if I hitch a ride? Like, he still has his own mission. As we talked about at this point, he still believes he's the leader of the others, and he has completely almost, like, extricated himself from 815 in that regard. It's only in the next few episodes when he is just, like, alongside these people that he's going to get integrated back into the group. As this scene displays once more and helps remind Sawyer and Juliet... Locke's going to go off and do his own thing. Much as you think he might have helped you because he killed one of the soldiers, he always has an agenda that he's pursuing. Always does. All right. So he's, he's going to say to Julia, are you team Crazy Town or uh, Crazy Town over Egg Town, I would say. Um, Faraday is going to be walking with Eloise. We listened to this at the top of the episode. Uh, uh, he says, I can't shake this feeling that I recognize you. I also can't shake this feeling that you're going to shoot me in 1977. Yeah, but in this moment, I mean, obviously Faraday doesn't know that. He's sort of calling Ellie's bluff, right? He's going to get into it later, but he's like, he actually advances on her. He like puffs his chest being like, go ahead, shoot me. Like, you, you, I'm too helpful to you right now. Also, I'll point out later that we are in the vicinity of an active bomb, so of course you wouldn't do that. So like, I'm going to call your bluff not realizing decades from now uh, she is indeed going to shoot him. Yes, indeed. Um, all right, so he's going to see the bomb. She's going to tell him to disarm it. And, uh, Mike, we are actually in this moment where uh, all like I, we, we basically have the rest of the episode in sound. <laughs> more, <laughs> so, more good, less. people can get a rest from our voices. This is this is what I'll say about about Jughead, uh, Mike. Is that like I think from this moment forward, I think it's just like filled with dynamite scenes. Like I think all of the scenes nice from choice this of words. point out. Yeah, I think like from from this point out, it's just like it's a really electro episode. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to listen in. Um, let's start with sound for Faraday is going to examine the Jughead. He's going to see that it is weeping. Uh, he is not happy about that, and he is going to make his displeasure very, very, very clear. Back up. What? Get back, get back. It's unsafe. We need to move. I swear, if you try anything. If I try anything, what? You're gonna you're gonna shoot me. Is that right? Yeah, that would be perfect. Because, of course, rifle fire. Right next to what would you call this? Hydrogen bomb. Yes, fantastic idea. Really inspired. Okay, listen to me. Do you people have any access to lead or concrete? For what? There's a crack in the casing. It needs to be filled with lead. You need to take it off this platform carefully and bury it. You brought me all the way out here to tell us that we have to bury it? I told Albert you could disarm that thing. You don't need to worry. You do what I say, you bury it, it won't go off. How do you know that? I need you to trust me. I don't trust you. Just bury it. Bury it and everything will be fine. Remember, you're superior. How can you be so sure? You want to take care of this bomb? You bury it. How do you know that? Because 50 years from now, this island is still here. There you... What did you just say? Whoa. Take it easy. 
I can explain myself a little better. I know how this sounds. Believe me, it's it's hard to explain. Fifty years from now, me and my me and my friends. That's where we're from. Okay. And here's the key. Everything's fine. I'm not saying it's perfectly fine. There hasn't been any atomic blast. All right. Drop your gun, Blondie. It's okay. She's okay. You can put your gun down. She puts hers down first. Why don't we all put our guns down? I said, drop it. Are they from the future too? You told her. Another reason why this isn't a great episode for Sawyer, Josh. He repeats then the same nickname that he gives to the very person that's next to him. Don't say Blondie when the other Blondie's right there. Is is uh, is Juliet Blondie yet, or is this like uh, like going to become like an inside joke? Uh, we're like, remember that time traveling lady we called Blondie? You're her now. Uh, You're I, her now. <laughs> I feel like he probably, I feel like he might have, he might have used it at some point in season three or four. Yeah, uh, I I like the scene a lot. Like, there's like the intensity of it that like feels even more intense when you know that she is like very capable of just shooting Daniel point blank. Yeah, exactly. And that, like, again, this is an image that we are going to be introduced to later in the season that is going to end in a very, very different way. We also know that Daniel Faraday is going to serve as, like, Eloise Hawking's maybe jumping-off point for exploring the idea of time travel as well, which we've already seen in Lost that she sort of is the representative of. You can imagine this was really an eye-opening moment for her, much like John Locke was for Richard Alpert later on, of it being like, wait a minute, time travel is capable on this island. Okay, there's a lot more to this than I I may think. It's it's a a seminal moment for this character. And again, we don't know it yet because we don't know who Ellie is. But when you know the full scope of things, it's a really important moment. Hugely so. Um, So I really like it on that level. Uh, I love Sawyer just like being totally on board. Like he has no choice. Like he's living it now. Like you told her that we're traveling through time. Yeah, <laughs> it's like kind of like really incredible. And I do feel bad for Sawyer because Sawyer again, he's trying to be this leader, right? He's trying to bust in and save Faraday. But Faraday kind of had this handled. Like I don't think Ellie would have shot him necessarily. He provides a laundry list of reasons why she wouldn't. But I'm glad he came in with sort of like the uh, the extra ammo. Uh, but good on Faraday, able to sort of like talk his way out of a situation. He's really doing super well on his like investigation and deception roles uh, in in the course of this episode and i also appreciate juliet coming in how about we drop our guns how about like nobody shoot each other wouldn't that be great yeah and i mean listen sawyer doesn't uh go through with it he you know listens to one blondie instead of the other but that continues to be juliet the great diplomat she did this at the end of uh because you left remember of like we've all had a tough day let's just go back she's just she's a great mediator juliet burke um so we're at this point right where um Faraday is like emphatic about how to get rid of the bomb. Um, and this is going to provide, you know, this is what, what he's going to get them to do is ultimately what's going to cause so much of lost to happen. But by like causing so much of lost to happen, Faraday is also beginning, you know, he's essentially shooting himself. <laughs> um, you know, he is, he is launching into action 
a plan that he will like uh, get like this harebrained idea on of like, um, what if we're not just on rails? What if we do have choice only to come to realize that, no, he was right the whole time and he's going to get himself shot by this very same woman. So it's it's interesting stuff. I know when it, uh, as it pertains to the bomb itself, we've got some feedback. We'll we'll uh, put a pin in that for now. Pour some lead on that. <laughs> don't don't pull concrete. out. Don't pull out the pin. <laughs> Don't pull out the pin. Um, let's go from one of Faraday's parents to another. Let's jump back to the present as Desmond David Hume is going to come in steaming hot, barking mad to Charles Winmore, now knowing that he's connected to Daniel Faraday. Sound number five. Mr. Widmore, I'm so sorry. He charged right past me. That's all right, Melanie. Mr. Hume is a colleague of mine. Please leave us. I know you have questions for me. I'm not going to answer them. I've come here to ask you something. And once you've told me everything I need to know, you'll never see me again. Understand? I need to know where I can find Daniel Faraday's mother. What makes you think I would even know the answer to that? Because even before you put Faraday on your little boat and sent him off to the island, you spent ten years funding his research. So I figure you must know something regarding his next of kin. Desmond... I haven't seen or heard from my daughter for three years. Just answer me this. Is she safe? Where's Faraday's mother? She's in Los Angeles. This is an address for her. I suspect she won't be pleased to see you. She's a very private person. Wait, Desmond. Deliver your message. And then get out of this mess. Don't put Penny's life in danger. Danger? You're getting yourself involved in something that goes back many, many years. It has nothing to do with you or my daughter. Wherever you were hiding, go back there. Thanks for the advice. loved how desmond burst into winmore's office like aragorn does into rohan right yeah. where he's just like through the double doors yeah the dumbledores yeah he <laughs> goes right in charging like a bull and i also love that he sticks to the plan he's like i know you have questions i'm not going to answer him because you suck and i'm awesome uh yeah and and you, you peed on my hands uh as mike <laughs> always likes to remind us um yeah i like this scene a lot because it's just great to see the power shift mm-hmm. uh desmond knows the stuff 
there's one thing he wants to know uh, and just the promise of leverage with maybe telling Charles about what's going on with Penny, uh, he feels like is enough to get the answers. But he just like walks in there with all the confidence of a man who's been through everything that he's been through, thanks in no small part to the actions of Charles Widmore, uh, and is able to kind of leverage that into getting exactly what he wants. I think for Widmore's part, to that point that we talked about earlier, he must just like automatically be like, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Janice, can you please send <laughs> Bob and Dan to go and uh, track down uh, Desmond? Yeah, and just, or, or like, just like, uh, wherever who, do we, who do you have in L.A.? Silas? Yeah, can you can you go give Silas a ring and tell him to just like go call Silas. Hey, hang out outside the look of the uh, the lamppost because I feel like Desmond Hume's coming there. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I, I love the scene where Far Cry from uh, Widmore denying. Desmond McCutcheon. There's sort of like a, a trilogy of, Des, of Desmond and Widmore in Widmore's office scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, yeah, we had that in Flashes Before Your Eyes. Mm-hmm. I guess it isn't in the office, but we have the scene in the constant at the auction. Uh, no, but we'll we'll have one in the afterlife. We'll I guess have that counts, one yeah. In, uh, in the final season, and so it's like totally different there. Uh, so, yeah, that's great. I yeah. think uh, and then, it's a, this, is a, this is a good midpoint. And I, and I like it because Desmond's almost taking a page out of Ben's uh, book here in that Widmore softens a bit. Granted, I think he's fine giving away the information uh, because as we talked about last week, like maybe it's it's just something that he's not necessarily privy to or something he can't access due to whatever rules might be set up. But I, I do think that Desmond sort of has a win here in being able to not necessarily, not only, sorry, uh, get with Penny, but almost like take her away from her father, right? right. Like he, it's almost like a gin Mr. Pake thing where he was able to steal her out from under his clutches. Uh, and so now Widmore feels a little defeated in that regard and this is something that desmond can hold over widmore for once in his life and so i I do really like the the shift in that power structure even though it seems like widmore is is maybe volunteering that information for whatever reason at least it's initially perceived as like wow desmond actually gets a win here over the supreme all-powerful charles widmore uh, and he's able to like walk out without having to suffer in any sort of ramification though maybe this starts to lead to Winmore being like, oh, Desmond's back. All right. Well, I have this idea to capture him and put him under a bunch of like electromagnetic experimentation when I make it onto the island. Well, I think, yeah, I think that there might be like, you know, in reconnecting with Eloise, which they'll do uh, around the time that he gets shot. Right. Um, I think like there could be like, you know, reading him in a little bit more on just how special he is. Like at this point also, um, I think like you have to imagine no for sure at this point Widmore has picked up John Locke right the Mm -hmm. Jeremy Bentham Mm -hmm. stuff has happened um so he's already like starting to like make his moves to reorganize and like you can even tell in terms of like the tenor of his conversation between Desmond and, and Penny that like the reason he doesn't like do anything towards Desmond right now maybe is like does he feel like some of this stuff is like the faded stuff to happen in order to make all of these other things happen? Uh, like if he knows that John Locke travels through time, if he knows all of this stuff is inevitably going to go down, um, does he feel like he needs to let Desmond kind of be off the off the chain to a certain degree, but also like understands and respects how special he is in a way that he didn't know before? We talked once before about how much does Charles know? 
is he like being a jerk to Desmond because he understands his role actually is very important? Or is this sort of like a blind side for Widmore eventually? And I think like the probably the more uh the more sensible and I think also more enjoyable one is that like Widmore got Desmond totally wrong. And so like he's just like drink like just like eating uh humble pie in smoothie form and mm-hmm. just like chugging it all day long uh around Desmond because like the way he's talking to Desmond here is very different than the way he's ever talked yeah. to him before. And I would also say that the way we're getting uh Widmore in this moment is so different from the Widmore that we are going to get in this next scene. Just to keep the Widmore conversation going, um let's go back to the fifties, go back to the island as John Locke is going to walk into town and we get uh the episode's great Charles Widmore reveal. Richard Alpert! Hey! Hey! I'm looking for Richard. Don't move. Richard Alpert! Now! Richard, I need to talk to you! Now! That's enough! Who are you? My name is John Locke. Is that supposed to mean something to me? Jacob sent me. Put the gun down. What? Richard, you can't seriously trust him. I said, put the gun down, Whitmore. Your name is Whitmore? Charles Whitmore? What's it to you? Nothing. Nice to meet you. I love that T.O.Q. smile, baby. Uh, Whitmore says what sounds like What's C to you? And the answer to that question shall be revealed in Worst Day Ever, the 24 <laughs> Season 1 recap podcast that will be available before the next episode of Down the Hatch. How about that? Yeah. Pretty good. Brilliant. Brilliant segue. <laughs> it kind of sounds like it's a, what's C to you? What's C to you? Yeah. I mean, maybe, uh, I mean, I don't think it's had C to you been sort of like created yet in not the 50s. Yet, not yet. Yeah. Uh-uh, so maybe, maybe so. we're talking about some yeah. other time traveling elements. Uh, 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 <laughs> I just, I love the smile on Locke's face when he's like, Oh my god, it. oh my god, this yeah. is baby Charles Widmore. Oh, you're such a little shit. Oh, this is yeah, hilarious. He's, uh, he's such a turd. He's such a turd. He's like, oh my god, this is the guy I'm scared of. But like after everything he's been through, uh, to see Widmore here, um, I think uh he's he's cracking up. I do wonder, given more time, if he didn't just blink away, right? Mm-hmm. Does John Locke just like kill this guy? Yeah, but then again, we asked like what would happen then? Yeah, like, is that what his intentions are, though? He's like, and by the way, that Widmore guy, you're going to have to let me kill him. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but I was told by Jacob, because, you know, Jacob tells you to kill people. He told me specifically that that this one little a-hole has to go in your camp. Everyone else can live, but this little guy has got to go. Because, like, at this point, Mike, like, he hasn't talked to Faraday. He doesn't know whatever happened happened. Right. You know? 
So maybe for him, he's like, yeah, if I stick around, I'll kill well, that I mean, guy it's, it's going to solve all the problems. It's going to come into the next scene, right, uh, with their meeting, where, like, Locke essentially is going to, whether he means to or not, manifest whatever happened, happened, of like, hey, here's this time loop that I'm going to essentially begin. Here's a compass. Yes. John Locke is going to make his own destiny. He's going to make uh, his own Locke. Yes, he's going to make his own lock is what's going to happen uh, next. So I just love that scene. Shitty little Widmore. Um, all right. Let's go back to the present. Let's uh, let's stop in with Desmond one last time with Penny. He's come. He comes bearing knowledge, folks. Uh, let's listen in. Sound number seven. And the fishy suddenly peeked out, but it saw the bat so that it ran away again. Hi. Hi. Good day. Yeah. You wanted to go fishing in the Thames. We were unsuccessful. And you? Did you find Faraday's mum? Uh, there's no one to find. She, um... She died a few years ago. Why are you lying to me? <laughs> what? I'm not. Where is she? in Los Angeles. Look, Penny, I've got nothing to worry about. Now, this was a mistake. You know, I, I made a promise here this would be done in a day and now it's done. It's not our problem anymore. And what happens if you wake up tomorrow and you remember something else? And I'll forget it. And the next day? I'll forget it. It doesn't matter, Pen. You're my life now. You and Charlie... Never forget it, Des. So I guess we're going with you. No, Penny Ben's there. Uh, so at this point, like, I do think that, like, you should be terrified uh, about the fact that, like. Ben has said, I'm going to kill your daughter. Penelope, is it? Very pointedly. Mm-hmm. Um, who is pointedly? And then... <laughs> that's the uh, you, that's the guy in the mine in the Dharma Initiative who's, like, pointing out where Saul Drillman should go. Uh, exactly. And and you, you also know that Ben is in L.A., so, like, no. So I do remember in the real time being like, oh, shit. So there was, like, the tension yeah. of, of Desmond and Penny, as, as you mentioned before. Uh, there is like the tension of like the show does build that, and I guess like your mileage varies on whether or not that's good or bad. Right, and there's, and there's also that- again this like repeated insistence from Desmond of like I'm done, 
I'm out. And you know, screenwriting 101, like the minute they say they're out, they're not out, you know? Yeah. Just when I thought I was out. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she, like, Penny is just the best. She sees through Desmond's bullshit immediately, and it's so great, right? That he's, like, coming up with this lie, and when you think that there's gonna be another entire lie to follow, Penny's like, nope, you're lying, tell me the truth. And Desmond's like, okay, I have to do this. She's like, God, I hate what you're doing right now, but fine, I'm gonna go with you. Like, damn, Penny's a great writer, die. Seriously. Yes. Uh, so I, I love Penny in this episode. I think she's, she's amazing. I love that she's like, at this point, it's like, Desmond, you can do your crazy shit, but you have to include me. Yeah. Like, uh, like if, if you're going to go off and do this stuff because you think it's morally right, the reasons we've run into trouble before is because like you didn't feel like you could share that with me. But like I can freaking handle it. I can absolutely yeah, remember. It. Remember when I chartered like an entire boat and a couple of Portuguese scientists, one of which looked like your buddy Jack, to find you. Like I'm, I'm fine being in on the weirdness. You just got to clue me in. You got to let me in on the weirdness. So, so she's in. I love that from Penny. Um, all right, final sound of the episode, and effectively final scene of the episode. There will be like one tiny little bit afterwards that doesn't really uh, is not really conducive to to sound. <laughs> uh, one last big conversation. Uh, from John Locke and Richard Alpert, humongously significant, even if it doesn't like fully feel that way in the moment. Um, really, so much of Lost happens because of what happens right now. Let's listen in. Sound number eight. I gave you this. Yes. After you were shot in the leg and I wandered out of the jungle to patch you up? That's right. And why don't I remember any of this? Because it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) I'm not sure what you're expecting me to say, John Locke. I expect you to tell me how to get off the island. That's very privileged information. Why would I share that with you? Because you told me that I had something very important to do once I get there. And because I'm your leader. You're my leader. That's what you told me. Look, I... Certainly don't want to contradict myself, but we have a very specific process for selecting our leadership, and it starts at a very, very young age. All right. All right. What year is it right now? It's 1954. All right. May 30th, 1956. Two years from now, that's the day I'm born. Tustin, California. And if you don't believe me, I suggest you come and visit me. Oh, no. What's wrong? It's about to happen again. You need to tell me now, Richard. How do I get off the island? Please, tell me! So wild. Yeah, so we have a very specific process for selecting our leadership. It happens at a young age. Locke realizes he hasn't been born yet in this time. He is two years away from being born. He tells Richard Alpert exactly where to find him when he is born. We know that Richard Alpert goes. We know that Richard Alpert continues to check in on John Locke for the rest of his life. We know that there is this great, tremendous interest in John Locke as a potential leader of the others, that the Matthew Abaddons of the world are going to come to him long before he ever goes to the island Mm -hmm. to encourage him on the walkabout. Um, Is there an argument, Mike, that 
Oceanic 815 crashes because John Locke is on it and because all of this has to happen? I mean, I guess, you know, does John Locke kickstart this idea of candidates for Jacob is an interesting thought experiment. Like, how old is this candidate system in place? Could it have been Richard Alpert goes back to Jacob and says, you're not going to believe what just happened. This guy named John Locke came to us, said he's from the future, gave me this compass, said all these things about like what the island could do. And it makes Jacob think, oh, this could be an interesting guy to take my place one day. And so he begins this process and starts to begin the process of specifically bringing a bunch of candidates together on a plane that could possibly lead to, to, you know, one thing happening. Ironically enough, in an episode that focuses on a guy that ends up crashing Oceanic 815. And so in that regard, you know, much like uh, it, some of the, the Oceanic 6 are responsible for, the, for those poor gawkers aboard Ajira, John Locke is responsible for maybe some of those other people crashing on the island as well. I, I love it. I think that we've faced the idea of a bootstrap paradox before in the constant, right, where Faraday tells Desmond to go find him so that Desmond can tell Faraday to go tell Desmond in the future about this type of stuff. Uh, but this is like an outright explicit reference to it of John Locke saying, OK, I know that you visit me, so I'm telling you to go visit me now. And it's, right. it's one of those really fun things that Lost does with time travel in this season. And this is before we've explicitly also established these rules of whatever happened, happened. We're still in this fun, nebulous area before any rules are explicitly stated. And so we can have some fun in this ball pit. And that's what we get right here with John Locke essentially like guaranteeing, kickstarting the besieged yet important life that he leads up until crashing onto the island. Yeah, it's I love it, Mike. I really, really, really do. Because, like, John Locke tells Albert to go. Jacob finds out from Albert at this point, probably like, yo, this happened. It's real. Uh, Like, yeah, he was born. That that happened. Uh, Jacob's probably suddenly like, fascinating. Let's keep tabs on him. Um, In the 1970s, like, they are going to, you know, come to find out about um, Sawyer's connection to to John Locke, Richard Alpert and Sawyer are going to have their tete a tete in Lafleur. Um, a couple years after that is when Jack and Hurley and Kate, when they're going to come back mm. and they're going to be on the island, they're going to blend in. You probably find out at this point through them if there are people who are like listening in. Certainly, a smoke monster is able to like you know be a little more incognito and pick up on some of this stuff that this John Locke guy that everybody now has on their radar. Uh, is is associated with these people. He's also dead. That might give the monster some ideas. Um, and so these guys having to come here, Jacob himself is probably seeing Endgame stuff, right? Like this is why like the chess is happening, and like this is going to be Jacob is going to have to like go off island and touch these people on the shoulders oh, mm. and, su- and and summon them to the island and all of this stuff. So like Locke doing what he does here, I think there's a real argument that it is uh, it is the you know we're pushing the the snowball down the hill. It's going to turn into this avalanche of everything else that happens on Lost. So does that like, does, can, does that mean that is Jin going to be the Quan in the cave? Then does that because Jin was back in the seventies and Sun was in the future? So maybe yeah, because Jin was back you know, then he's like oh yeah I know this guy Jin uh, he's the Quan that and surely there'll be not be another Quan that comes onto the island. It's interesting. Uh, I think that that could make sense. And like, also at this point, you know, the whole like, why doesn't Kate even get like a numbers number? 
Uh, like, you know, she's crossed off because she's, a, you're a mother. I didn't think you'd want the job, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> just on a lot of levels. God damn it, Jacob. Um, I know. But like, it, from his logic at that point, like, even then, he knows because she's come back that she's looking for Aaron's mother. Like, if they've got the intelligence on these people, if they, and you know, we, we know that the others have like deep dossiers on these people. What are they able to start like putting together now? Is Jacob like, able to like piece some of this stuff together uh that like is that's why she's got like an off number um but um but hurley and Locke and sawyer and saeed and jack and and one of the quans being Jin, like all of that would track as far as people who from this moment forward because of john Locke's conversation with richard and everything that richard's able to find out from there and then the people who are traveling in time who are connected to Locke explicitly to Richard Alpert, right? Like, it would make sense that these would all be people like, this is it. Jacob's like, this is it. I'm smart enough to know that Smokey McSmokerton, who's been trying to kill me forever, who's been looking for a loophole, is going to see this as a loophole, is probably right if we don't play this right, but this is the moment. This is this is where it's happening. So I think that this is like, this is a foundational moment for all of Lost, is yeah. this conversation. And it is like relatively... Uh, you know, it is like relatively low key, like it's played pretty chill given the severity of what's happening here in this conversation yeah. between John and Richard. Well, especially considering this is not how the episode ends. Like, I think they wanted to build in something more climactic. So it ends with, oh, something's happening with Charlotte. It turns out to be, you know, Charlotte's not, she definitely is not doing well. Uh, we're going to be a couple episodes removed from her actually dying, but I could tell in true losty fashion that they wanted to end with something big. But I absolutely agree. If you're going with like, pure just seminality of the moment it's gotta be this because as yes. you mentioned before this is the snowball to kickstart the giant avalanche as it were the small grain of dirt to start the mudslide this is just charlotte sort of like accelerating in the time sickness yeah yeah she's uh it's going poorly it is the final thing of the episode i think charlotte convulsing and falling to the ground like this is sort of like legendary lost stuff, maybe not for like the best reasons, but like now we know it's starting to it's starting to get real. Yeah, though, again, well, it'll be a couple of episodes, you know, before she really ends up looking a little bit worse for wear. But in this moment, at least you're like, oh, OK, Charlotte's dead. I mean, she sort of gets the visibility spike, right? Like she has Daniel declare his love for her. Of course, that would be a good moment to kill her off. Correct. Um, so that's the episode. That's Jughead. I think Jughead is really provocative has a lot of stuff going on that makes you think. Uh, a lot of stuff that when you think about it really hard, like you can relate to Charlotte bleeding out the nose <laughs> uh, by the end of it. I'm giving it a 3.9, just shy of the fours, but I really do appreciate this episode. It's like almost like an appreciation boost. Mm. Is I think like the significance of Jughead is not lost on me. Um, and it has a bunch of really great scenes in there. But if you're a little lower than that, or if you're higher than that, like I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't quibble with you in either direction. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this. I give it a 3.7. Uh, I give the lie a 3.6, and I like this slightly more based on what you said because I think the on island stuff is just so cool. I don't think we've really had as big of an episode on Lost so far that has just been so great at setting up so many big things in both the chronological future and the show's future. And so Jughead does feel like an actually really important episode of Lost. I don't know if the quality of the episode necessarily measures up to that. There's some really 
fun stuff in here. But like I said, I, I, I am not a fan of the Desmond stuff in season five, especially. And I, I feel like when you boil down the plot in this episode, especially like the, you think you're eating the steaks, but there are no steaks. You're just eating nothing. It's invisible and that you're carving your knife into when you know everything that happens. As much as I love Desmond, uh, I, I sort of worry for him running frenetically around Great and Britain for really nothing at the end of the day. So I think the good very much outweighs the bad, though. We, we got, you know, a good span of things. Lois, I think, was like a 3.3, but the highest, as we mentioned before, was a, a 4.1. So again, I think we're sticking in this very, like, solid mid to high threes for lost season five so far it's been a very strong three episode start for sure all right let's get into the feedback this is from down servo down writes in how much could jacob tell richard about Locke if he went and asked jacob shortly after meeting Locke? i think that's the thing probably not a lot yeah J- J- jacob doesn't that- travel through time i don't think he could no and I think that what's also interesting here is that John Locke blinks out of existence in front of Richard. So he makes an impression. Yeah. Uh, like he comes in saying, like, I'm your leader. He's bloviating. This guy probably thinks he, like, I don't know, got knocked in the head pretty hard while he was on the island. But Locke proves himself by giving a compass to Richard, talking about time travel, and then literally disappearing in front of him. Like, hell of a correct. magic act. Correct. Uh, so how much could Jacob tell him? Probably what he tells him is, oh, well, that's a very interesting story. Um, he told you his birthday. He told you where to be when he's born. Well, that's two years from now. Go visit him in two years. Yeah, that's probably what Jacob says, and that I think starts a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, from the great Snorri Jonsson uh, writes in and says, "I just started watching Chronologically Lost for the first time a few days ago, and seeing this episode through the eyes of Richard is so interesting." Seeing him arriving on the island in 1867, meeting Locke in 56, and then visiting him again, uh, and then again around 1960, it makes the show feel so complete and circular watching it like that. I gotta say, Mike, I am starting to get a little bit interested in checking out Chronologically Lost. I was gonna say, I would love to actually petition the Hatchlings if you all watched it. I mean, there there might be a universe that exists out there that maybe we do a series where Josh and I go through Chronologically Lost and do maybe what, like... I don't know, like 40, have, 40 minutes at a time or something. I have no, I have no idea how it would work. But uh, if you have, we, if you have ideas and you think it's like an idea yeah. that might be worth pursuing, absolutely, let us know. We are all ears. Let us know. We are more than just ears, but we also. <laughs> I am have one our giant ears. ear. <laughs> Wide open. Uh, from Av, Av writes in. Why does Richard believe Faraday? He's deeply suspicious of him until he plays the "I love her" card. Are we sure that Richard is smart? He seems to almost blindly believe everyone who tells him anything. Wow. Av coming in with the fire arrows. I mean, listen, I I think that Richard is fine believing in others because when he crash landed on the island, a plume of black smoke appeared to him. And then uh, an anthropomorphized version of good came to him and give, gave him everlasting life. I think I'd believe in a lot of stuff if that happened to me personally. I think so as well. Uh, Daniel Brennan asks, is Richard the leader of the others in 1954? Yeah, I would imagine so. Uh, So then I guess that begs the question, because we talk about sort of like the abdication of leadership, right? That like, when does Richard become the consigliere and sort of step back in the leadership position? It's got to happen at some point in these intervening years, because when we come back into the 70s, then Ellie and Widmore are sort of like the dual leaders in the 70s. When does Widmore sort of, or when does Alpert sort of like take that step back? Right, yeah. Or maybe there's another leader here who's like out on a mission 
doesn't come maybe, back maybe it was that third soldier that Locke killed cunningham mr cunningham uh from eric divestein happy birthday uh not yet uh it's coming up though a uh, couple months uh, happy birthday eric you cannot say that we didn't wish you a happy birthday <laughs> No, it's coming up. I've got it. I've got it on the calendar. Uh, Eric writes in, why do you think the U.S. military chose this island for their hydrogen bomb test? Do they know something about the island or was it random? Eric, don't mistake coincidence for fate. I mean, it could be a thing where uh, we have certainly seen, especially in a lot of like superhero canon, how the military or the government knows secret things about paranormal activity. Maybe they have it on the map quite literally and wanted to test out some stuff. Maybe it just happened to be an island that appeared in the South Pacific around this time. Uh, and let's do one more. This is actually from the Poster Recaps patron Discord, uh, where, uh, as Brendan Fitzpatrick calls him, Eric, our bomb guy, um, Eric, who has a lot of expertise in the field, uh, wrote in with some thoughts about Jughead the Bomb, not the episode. Uh, so Eric with the expertise. We love it when we hear from the experts. Eric writes in, Faraday's correct in that the best course of action is to bury the Jughead and cover it with lead and or concrete. There's only three things that will protect you from radiation. Time, distance, and shielding. Time equals minimizing the amount of time you spend in proximity to the source. Distance equals increasing the distance between you and the source, because gamma rays can travel a few kilometers, getting weaker as they go. And shielding means put material that will absorb or scatter the radiation between you and the source. Lead is the commonly used shielding, but I doubt a significant amount of lead is sitting around on the island. Concrete would work, but you probably need thickness in the ballpark of five to eight feet, which is a lot. Water would also work, and if they could get it into the ocean, that might be the best the best play. Mm. Either way, if it stays on land, it's going to contaminate local animal and plant life along with the groundwater. So if children could be born on the island, they would eventually start being born with a third eye or mutant powers. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I guess ideally burying it in the ocean would have solved a lot of problems. Was it just a matter of mobility that because it was in the Mesa and it was so far inland, they didn't really have the means to transport it cautiously without setting it off without an arse type yelling at them, right? Of like, it sweats. You can't move it. Yeah. Uh, so they they're told to to bury it underground and uh, put it in concrete. But we know, uh, so they, they buried it, it's buried underneath the barracks, mm-hmm. uh, is where uh, is where the bomb is ultimately placed. Is it, like, just, like, covered in concrete, or is it just, like, kind of, like, hanging out underground? I kind of don't... I, I believe it was just remember. sort of hanging out. I'm pretty sure, I'm trying to remember in the incident <laughs> when they, like, when, yeah, when they break through the wall. I think it's just, like, almost sitting there a la something out of Indiana Jones, like, on a pedestal. Yeah, they buried it underground, underneath the barracks. Uh, so, uh, maybe it being underneath the barracks, uh, some of these, uh, these freaky deaky, uh, mutations are starting to occur. Well, maybe, maybe that's why the superpowers were sort of pushed along. It wasn't that's island technology. It's, uh, just yeah. radiation. Uh, let's get to the MVP LVPs. Mike, you've got three MVPs. I've got two. I've got three LVPs. You've got two. Uh, it looks like we have once again... Um, five different people getting MVP points. Ooh, look at this. Yes, come through diversity. Uh, I'm going to start with Daniel Faraday. 
I complimented him throughout this episode on Island, at least. Uh, he does a really good job, like, staying cool. We talked about how Daniel Faraday isn't really great under interrogation, especially when he's trying to lie. This might be the exception. He does a great job of posturing as someone from the military. He finds out all this information, and he does, you know, place some ideas in people's heads that are going to germinate. He's able to confess his love for Charlotte. This might be an all-time episode for Daniel Faraday. Very good episode for Daniel Faraday. I'm giving a point to Desmond, uh, despite what we said about Desmond's uh, season five story arc. First of all, he looks exceptional. <laughs> uh, but also, like, you know, he's being the hero that we love. He, you know, he knows, he feels it in his bones that he has to go and do something about this, that this is a real memory. He can't just let these people suffer. He has to do something. Uh, so that's the Desmond we know and love. And also his confrontation with Widmore is such a long time coming that I got to give him some props. Well, let me give a point then to his constant, Penny, who really is his constant in this episode, saying, Desmond, what are you doing? Stop it. This is not good. And she every single syllable that comes out of her mouth, Josh, is 100% correct. And so like, despite her having to go along with Desmond in all of this, I, I just got to go with Penny for being so right all the time. Um, I will give an MVP point to John Locke. It's been a while. Uh, it's been a minute, it feels like. John Locke getting a point here. Uh, Locke with, like, the bravado to just charge into Albert's camp, and he's able to capture Albert's attention really well. Very smart move of, like, Jacob sent me. And then, uh, if he didn't give Richard the information he gave him, we, I think, wouldn't have lost yeah. is a possibility. Thank you, John you know? so, <laughs> Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Maybe ultimately a little bit bad for him, but by involving himself in this loop and creating this destiny for himself, he's also kind of creating this shared destiny with all of the other characters, which is going to save the island from the monster's ultimate evil plan. So John Locke is damning himself, but kind of saving the day in this moment. I think that there's a read where that's the case. You said other characters. Let me give my final MVP point to a literal other character. We mentioned her before, but really good Juliet episode. She is once again serving herself to be the coolest head, no matter what time period that she's in. She's able to speak Latin and serve as the, the go-between. She's an incredibly valuable resource throughout this episode. Yeah. Um, LVP's time. All of my LVP's go to others, actually. Uh, Cunningham dies. That's easy. We break his neck. Cunningham scores an LVP point. Um, Eloise. I feel like Eloise probably should have, like, remembered Faraday in this whole situation a little bit better. And, like, I'm, like, giving her, like, a preemptive LVP point mm. for, for So you're waiting for, like, the variable. Like, this, this, yeah. this point will come back around. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, uh, you know, I like the character. I just, yeah, this is sloppy stuff. And then Widmore, um, more uh, flashback Widmore uh, yeah. or uh, time travel Widmore. Yeah, no, little, little, modern, little, modern Widmore is actually kind of great in this one. Little A-hole Widmore is so bad he's good uh in this episode purposely so like he's this is definitely one of those season one sawyer like this is just a bad character and so we almost like relish in giving them an lvp point i'm gonna give him one as well for that very reason he's again if penny everything she says in this episode is 100 right everything young charles winmore says in this episode is 100 wrong and so i love that balance as well right that his very own daughter counteracts him here but I sort of alluded to it before, I'm going to counteract my own MVP point for Faraday by giving him an LVP point, because he does put 
Teresa Spencer in a coma. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument that, like, they're colleagues. They both, like, you know, get, like, messed up from this. But we don't know the full story. I'm not, I'm not going to fight you hard on it. Um, especially because if you had not taken away that point, then uh, he would be tied for first place this season with David Reyes and <laughs> Carmen Reyes. And currently, they remain the MVPs Ooh, what of if, season five. If Faraday had tied with them, does that make him their new son? Um, it's possible, right? You have to adopt yeah. me? Yeah. I think, actually, you have to adopt me? Uh, I think those are the uh, rules. Mr. Tron, Lady Tron, your new name is Mr. Time? Mr. Time? <laughs> um, all right, so those are the MVPs. Uh, Widmore and Frogert are bringing up the rear. <laughs> Wait, uh, Widmore's getting negative four in three episodes. He might be approaching Anthony Cooper levels in season five. I'll be curious. I'll be curious to know. He he will he will uh, certainly. This is not the last time he's getting dinged up. If not this season, then long term. Uh, so we'll see where all of that goes next week, Mike. It's the Little Prince. Yeah, it's the Little Prince. I think it's that the Little Prince. I mean, I, I think you talked about how maybe this episode was perceived at least initially as a bit of a moving the chess pieces episode on island. That's what the Little Prince is off island. Because uh, I think this is when, like, we start to get the plan right of let's get the Oceanic Six together. Everything sort of is caught up in who's who's Norton and Agostini working for. Uh, all this tension behind Kate and Aaron. We get a little bit of on island stuff. I think this is where we actually speaking of Aaron. This is where we go back to the birth of Aaron. I would argue maybe the strongest part of this episode is the ending. But that being said, look, Kate episodes, I have gotten more enjoyment out of them on the whole than I think I would have before we started this this kooky experiment. So I'm, I'm happy to see if that's another case here. Uh, I'm excited to check it out. The Little Prince, that's going to be in your podcast feed on June 4th, or if you're a patron of Post Show Recaps, June 2nd, consider signing up. Patreon.com slash Post Show Recaps. Sign up next week. June 1st, perfect time to sign up for Post Show Recaps on Patreon. Uh, we charge at the start of the month, so you're going to get your bang for your buck. Uh, you get to, If you join at the $5 level, you get great podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you sign up at the $10 level, you get those great podcasts in an exceptional community in the Post Show Recaps Patreon Discord. If you sign up at the $15 level, you get cool swag. You can get a Wiggler's Wombats hat. Did you know that? Wow. You sign up at that $15 level, so... Uh, those are the tears. Uh, you shall be giving us tears of joy should you choose to <laughs> Can sign you up. Call it that tears of joy. <laughs> tears of joy. Yeah, I just did. There we go. Uh, Patreon.com slash post show recaps next week. Also, the launch of the aforementioned 24 podcast, Worst Day Ever, a 24 season one recap podcast uh, coming your way in 24 minute intervals. The first episode will be longer. I think the second episode too. But other than that, we are aiming for 24 minute episodes of the podcast. Really fun, very stressful, really enjoyable. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy yeah, There's it. essentially I a bomb in the corner, yeah, right? That's taken down. It's great. It's great. But like the, the goal is like so much more dangerous than what we were doing with Lost, which was untenable. That like <laughs> this, like we have to like we have to do it. Uh, and also like I have a co-host uh, in in the legendary Emily Fox, who is my worst day ever 24 podcast co-host. 
who, unlike you, Mike, is not going to tolerate it if we go over <laughs> the exceeded time limit. Like, she doesn't want to go past 24 minutes. So, like, we have a hard out. It's going to be really, really, really fun. So I hope that you all enjoy it. Uh, we will have that podcast out. I believe that's going to be launching on June 1st. So keep an eye out in your podcast feeds for that one to drop. Um, Mike Bloom, you got those Bloom files going. Got the Bloom files going. Uh, we're working our way towards the end of season four. Again, if we're talking about time traveling and accessing uh, repressed memories, got a couple of those fun little things, as well as two bouts of wrongful accusations of murder going on on the Bloom files. But also, if you're a fan of the reality TV, specifically of The Survivor, uh, you're going to want to be checking out what's coming your way first week of June as well. Not only is it the premiere of Worst Day Ever, a 24 rewatch podcast, but also the premiere of Survivor South Africa Immunity Island. If you have had your ear tuned to the ground whatsoever, Shannon, Gus, and I have been covering this series out the wazoo, including a bunch of stuff in the preseason. I should have an inner, another one more podcast out this weekend as well. And who knows, maybe in a few weeks' time, uh, the very person I'm talking to might show up on the podcast, washing up, washing up on the beach a la Jin in, in 1988. Who can say? Uh, that's uh, if you were able to time travel, you might be able to get uh, get some further clarity on that one. But it was, you know, you never know. You never know. You never hey, know. You never know. Uh, that's what we always say here on Down the Hatch. Send in your feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps dot com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Round Howard at a Mike Bloom type or in the Post Show Recaps Patreon Discord Patreon dot com slash Post Show recaps mike bloom we'll talk next week about the little prince until then everybody take care bye bye four eight, 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 eight,